0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Oh good morning. So
1: uh, what do you think? Bias or just good luck? Go ahead and hold that thought. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go on this morning. But this morning, as we jump into chapter 2 of the book of James, we continue in our series, Getting Clarity into an Un- in an Unclear World. We're going to start into uh, a place where James is confronting an issue that is going on in the early church that was more than just A social experiment about unconscious bias. It was actually bias and division that was going on as a result of the differences that existed within the early church that he was pastoring or that he was leading. And in particular, what he's speaking to is this difference between the rich and the poor uh, in the church and in the wider culture. When we opened up this book, when we began, uh, one of the things that we said is that, of course, James is leading a church in the city of Jerusalem in the first century. And that church was under uh, the Roman Empire. And so in the Roman Empire at that time... 90% 90% of the people in the, in the culture, in the society, lived under modern-day poverty levels. And so you had 90% of the people who were really, really poor, and 10% of the people who were really, really rich. There was really no discernible middle class. In fact, you were either really rich or you were either really poor, and most likely you were born rich, Uh, You stayed rich and you died rich, or you were born poor, you stayed poor and you died poor. In other words, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities to move up on the socioeconomic ladder in the Roman world. And so, as a result, it was pretty clear to almost anybody who was there, living there at the time, and especially even within the church, that uh, the distinction between the rich and the poor. And as James is going to point out in chapter 2, that the rich even wore different clothes than the poor did. Most cases, the poor had to make their clothes, so they wore homemade clothes, and the rich, of course, had somebody else make their clothes, which looked a lot better and were of better quality. And so just in the way that they dressed, you could tell who was rich and who was poor. So when we gathered in something like, when they would gather in something like this, like what we're gathered in this morning, a worship gathering, you could dis- easily discern who were the rich people and who were the poor people just by looking at the clothes that they wore. And so there were these outward markers of wealth and, and material, uh, material wealth, and there were these outward markers of poverty almost everywhere you went in the Roman Empire. It was very clear who was rich and very clear who was poor. And James gets to a place where, of course, he's confronting this situation because it had become such an issue in the early church. And really what we're going to arrive at, is this idea that the church is supposed to be different, not look like the world, not bring in the world values, especially in terms of how we evaluate one another in community and who our identity is in Christ together. And so James is going to confront that. He's going to talk about that situation. He's going to talk about a couple different scenarios here in James chapter 2 to point this out. And at the end, we're going to get to a place where we can see this situation uh, in a way that looks different than what our situations might look like but at the same time has a lot to say to us uh, today even in the church and before we do though Let's take a quick review of what we've learned over the past three weeks because James chapter one, the way this book is kind of is laid out is that James chapter one essentially is an introduction to what James is going to talk about through the rest of the four uh, chapters through the book. And so he gives us these introductions to these main themes and then he kind of flushes them out the rest of the way through the book. So let's review a few of those themes that we saw in the first three weeks from chapter one in the book of James. First of all, James is big on this idea that faith is seen in action. In particular, how we respond to things like trials and temptations in our lives displays where ultimately our faith lies. Secondly, uh, James explains to us as a result of this, we need wisdom to live in this world as Christ followers. And as he tells us, God is freely, generously giving us wisdom if we come and we ask of him. And that wisdom is actually kind of uh, perceived or presented as God's perspective on things. Also, trials can lead to temptation, temptation can lead to sin, and sin when it's not treated, sin when it's not recognized, sin when it's not repented of and confessed, can easily enslave us. James also talks about how we can see most clearly during those times where we look into God's Word. Last week we talked about how James used the metaphor of a mirror to explain what it looks like for us to look at God's Word and how to see ourselves from the perspective of who God says that we are, And who God says especially we are as Christians as we follow Jesus in the world. And then finally, James has begun this discussion on what the church community should look like. And in particular, this idea of how the rich and the poor should relate to one another, and how the rich and the poor should see each other in light of the gospel. And that is, of course, what he begins to flesh out as we look at James chapter 2 this morning. So with that being said, let's look at uh, James chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to go through 13 here this morning. I'll begin reading here in verse 1. It says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not, are, are, is it not the rich who, who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, so James gives us two scenarios here that were likely happening in some form or fashion in the church and in the Roman culture at the time. He talks about one scenario where, again, just like us gathering here in this worship gathering here this morning, a rich man and a poor man walk in at the same time. And the tendency, we'll talk about why this was a temptation for the early church here in a minute, but the temptation for them was to look at the rich man who was dressed in fine clothing and to give him the best seat of the house. Right, and the poor man, if there was anything left for him in the end, maybe we would let him sit somewhere in the back or stand over in the corner, or he might be able to sit on the floor if the place was packed. Now, we look at a scenario like this from a modern standpoint in the modern church, and it seems ridiculous that maybe this had even exist, right? I mean, could you imagine that happening <laughs> in the modern church today? Like we hold a line up at the door. We use our, our welcome team or, uh, to, to, to make sure we have a line at the door, and we just kind of evaluate people by their income level and then let them in by how, how well they get paid, right, as a result. And then maybe they pay us for certain seats that they want to sit in. Can you imagine that happening in the church? I mean, it's hard to even imagine that taking place. It's completely ridiculous but what was happening in the church in the in the early century in the early first century is that they were basically bringing in all of the values from the world into the way that they related to one another as community so in other words it was they had been become accustomed to living that way for them that's just the way that things were everywhere around them the rich were the people who were the powerful they were favored they got special treatment everywhere they went. And the poor were generally considered to be second-class citizens. In fact, it was probably the poor in many cases who were the servants of the rich. And so when you bring them both into a church together, it probably just felt like for the poor, this is just what we do. This is just what we're used to. And James is exposing this by, by helping them understand that, look, the way that we are supposed to relate to one another within the church is different from this. different from this and it helps us understand a little bit though about why this scenario uh, james describes would even be played out in a church because given the social structure in ancient rome it, it really mattered who you knew the only chance you had really if you were poor of getting out of poverty and maybe getting into a level that was close to being middle class or rich was if somebody allowed you to do that because of course the rich were the power brokers in society and in culture And so there was a real temptation within the church to show favoritism to the rich man, hoping that in some way that he might lift you out of poverty. But James says, of course, that James confronts this favoritism exactly for what it is. It is sin. And he uses this scenario that's apparently happening in worship gatherings to really get at the heart of the issue. Notice, and this is big, and we mentioned this earlier, this is a big thing that James does throughout this book. It's also very similar to what Jesus would do in the Gospels, is he would point to a behavior and then he would kind of reverse engineer that back to the heart. So he would show us that that behavior comes from what you are thinking or believing, and so at a core level, what we believe and our attitudes have to be changed. He says, ultimately, look, you may be doing this, this is the behavior that I'm condemning, but ultimately, I'm not condemning necessarily just the behavior, but the attitudes and the judgments that you are making with your evil thoughts. And then as he traces that back, he says, your thoughts come from your belief, which leads us back to the gospel, which we'll get to here in a minute. But he uses that scenario ultimately to point to the fact that, look, as the church, we are people who claim to worship Jesus, who Philippians chapter 2 tells us was a man who had, the, who had the divine nature within him and yet humbled himself to the very point of a servant and a servant who went to the cross on our behalf. And so everything that James sees here about favoritism, about favoring those who have a special standing or a special amount of money in their bank account on, in the world is antithetical to the gospel. And it's antithetical to the Jesus whom they claim to follow. And this is where James drills down because he doesn't say just don't do that, right? Don't just, not just don't correct your behavior, but correct your heart and your attitude. And I think this is important for us to hear because if we just read in here James saying, look, don't force the poor to sit on the floor, we might read this and think to ourselves, well, we're good there, James. I mean, there's no poor sitting on the floor as we gather. But ultimately what James is getting at is the thing that connects us all in this, puts us all in the same boat. It's the attitudes with which we view one another, with which we discriminate against one another, with which we have biases that cause division in community. Take take a look again at verse 4 to see what James is really focusing on here that the it's the point behind the point if you will. We talked about this he said judges with evil thoughts. And that's an interesting phrase here and it needs a little unpacking to get to the central point but in context if you remember in James chapter 1 he talks about the person who has divided loyalties, who is like a two, who is like a dual-minded person, a divided person in his mind, a double-minded person. And what he, hel- what he helps us to see is that for all of us, there's these desire- desires that are going on in our hearts, and some of them are godly desires, some of them are, are sinful or evil desires, and at times it causes us to be double-minded about really who we are in allegiance to. Are we really trusting God and allied to Christ, or are there things in our lives that cause us to think and to believe differently based upon our sinful desires? And so James calls this all to the carpet, helping us remember again what it's really supposed to look like by holding the gospel up in front of us and showing us who we are, not only as individuals, but as a community. This is a big concern for James because the church is called to be a community of people who have the servant Jesus at the center and who are called by the gospel of mercy to understand how they're to treat one another within community and into the world. And then he adds to this, this whole discussion then about the rich taking the poor to court which is a little difficult for us to even make sense of. Even if we look into historical context, we're not exactly sure what was involved per se in these court proceedings. But I think one thing we can say ultimately is that James is getting us to the point where he is telling us that this was an environment where the rich would take advantage of, oppress is the word that's used in verse 6 there. It also might be translated exploit in your translation, but oppress and exploit the poor. And so what was going on in those systems is that the, the rich were extending their unjust practices against the poor. Remember, they were the ones who were the power brokers. They were the ones who were in charge of the policies. They were the ones who knew the people who were the power brokers. And so in many cases, what the rich were probably doing is making sure that them, their families, and their friends were the ones who stayed rich. And that the poor stayed poor. This is ultimately what James is calling out from the standpoint of the rich being perpetrators of injustice, and the poor being victims of that injustice. Now, I know know when we look at verse 6 and we see the word oppressed there or being oppressed, that word is a loaded term for us today, but I think one thing we need to realize in all of this is that James is saying this about oppression, that God hates it and that we should be opposed to oppression wherever it exists. And he challenges even the rich among them in that church to recognize how they have been perpetrators of injustice to this point. So what James is describing here in this this, uh, situation of injustice is exposed then by the law of liberty or the law of mercy. He says to them, essentially, if you are people who have been shown mercy by God, if this in the gospel, who you are as Christians, this is how you have been shown mercy in the gospel, that you didn't get what you deserve as a result of your sin, you got mercy and you got grace. You are someone who is spiritually in poverty and you've been given mercy by God through Jesus Christ. Which puts us all, of course, on the same level. No matter how much money we make, no matter how much we possess in this world, no matter what our titles may be, we are all even in front of the cross. And he brings us back to this place of saying, you who have been extended mercy, now you're to show mercy in the way that you love people around you. And in particular, those who are poor, who were struggling, just to live day by day, you're to show mercy towards those who are in need. And in fact, what you're doing is quite the opposite, taking them to court to, exi- to, to pull out even more of what they don't even have. The early church, what James is describing is a situation where he is calling us to a place of grace and mercy in valuing human beings in particular as created in the image of God. When he says the height of this, the, the the command of it all, the command of what it means to be the church following Jesus in the kingdom is to love your neighbor as yourself, he's holding up this picture of what this looks like. And I think it's important to realize how much of a, uh, how, how shocking in some ways this would have been to the Roman culture. Uh, keep in mind, a lot of these folks were growing up in the Roman Empire and they, and they were coming into the church trying to figure out what this gospel is all about. And so, um, Garrett Fagan, who is a historian, gives us a pretty good insight into what the Roman Empire looked like as far as what it meant to value human beings at that time. And it's pretty eye-opening when we compare it with a just standard courtesy of what it means to, to love people in, in God's image. But he says this. This is what existed. This was kind of the Roman way as it, as it had to uh, do with human dignity. He says this. Ideas of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent. And large swaths of the population, which would have included large population of the people who were poor, were seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. And more than most, the Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, and dominion over obedience." So for James, the fact that the rich were oppressing the poor in court has more in line with the Roman way than the way of Jesus. And it was such an egregious hypocrisy in the church. It was anti-mercy, it was unjust, and it was anti-gospel as a result. And so as James confronts them with this perspective, what he reminds them of then is how the gospel is supposed to make us different. That this community that we gather together with in the church is supposed to be different from the world. And not just different in some vague way just for the sake of being different, but different because Jesus is different. And different because the gospel of which we subscribe to and believe, the gospel which saves us, is different than the world. And I think even with all of this in mind, and clearly as we can look at this from our perspective, think this is just wrong. Like how in the world could this church fall into this kind of behavior, the church in the early first century was apparently really struggling with this. And as we said earlier, in a lot of ways, the poor just kind of saw themselves as this is just who I am and this is just who they are as a result. The rich expected to be favored. The rich expected favoritism when they walked in. They expected partiality. And the poor expected to be treated as second-class citizens because that's how they were treated every other place they went. But remember, James in chapter 1 corrects this thinking. He says, Let the poor man boast in his exaltation. Let the rich man boast in his humiliation because we are to be different in our identity and who we are in community because of what Jesus has done. He even says in this chapter in particular that the poor should remember that they are heirs of the kingdom of God. And just like anything else, though, because it was something that the church at that time was accustomed to practicing, Either they didn't think it was that big of a sin, and if they did, they didn't think that favoritism as a sin was really that big a deal. I mean, it can't rank up there with all those other ones, right? I mean, it's just a little bit of favoritism, just a little bit of discrimination. But James repeats this in response, or says this in response, and listen to again what he says in verses 9 through 11. He says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor, transgressor of the law. Now, if the church was at that time tempted to think that that was not a big deal, the partiality that was going on, James confronts them with how big of a deal this really is. And and he says this, I think, for a couple of reasons. He compares really favoritism and discrimination to two of the most heinous sins that you can imagine, adultery and murder. And the reason he does this seems to be for two two reasons. First of all, is that he's reminding us that sin is sin. And no sin should be excused just because it seems like a smaller sin than maybe some some other bigger ones. And all sin puts us in a place where we are in need of God's mercy and grace no matter who we are. And secondly, though, he joins particularly adultery and murder as these examples of the anti-command of what it means to love your neighbor. In other words, there is, this, is, this is an extreme example of what it means to not love your neighbor. Adultery and ultimately murder. And he joins that with discrimination and favoritism to help us see that those things are based in the same kind of attitude. A lack of love for your neighbor, a lack of valuing the image of God in someone else and they are corrosive to the unity and the understanding of the church. Now, it's easy for us, I think, in some ways, to look from an outside perspective, in some ways to kind of judge what's going on there. Like, we would never do this. I can't believe these people fell into this trap. Maybe it was just cultural, whatever it may be. But I think when we read this, we're not let off the hook as far as what these attitudes in us actually, uh, how these attitudes in us are actually revealed from time to time. Psychologists and social scientists will tell us that one of the most universal qualities of human nature is that we are all biased um, in some way or another. And I know that's that's kind of hard to think about, right? We don't like to think about ourselves as biased. So we think about ourselves as biased. We think about ourselves like, I don't want to be bigoted. I don't want to be all these other things. But in reality, what happens is that we are typically, uh, in all ways or in some ways, biased towards one thing or another. This happens in all of us in reference to things like gender, race, religion, nationality, socioeconomic class from time to time. It even happens in trivial things like uh, who your favorite sports team is. I know that I'm, I'm, a, big, I'm a big sports fan, and I know that if, if somebody likes the same team that I like, I just tend to be biased towards them. I like them a little bit more once I get to know the fact that they are you know, a fan of the same team that I'm a fan of. And if they're a fan of a rival team, it takes a little bit more grace in that relationship at times right and that's a trivial thing but at the same time it's still true if i'm honest about it there is a slight little bit little bit of bias there and that bias can can color a whole bunch of things that maybe we're not even conscious about in fact psychologists will tell us one of the most dangerous things is that we are biased about our biases that we have a blind spot in our biases it's easy for us to pick out biases in other people it's much more harder to see those biases in ourselves I think if we went back to the example of the video that we saw earlier, if you were to ask those men why they helped that, that first lady who was stranded on the road with the flat tire, they probably wouldn't say immediately and probably wouldn't even realize that they they helped her because she was physically attracted, or physically attractive, right? They helped her because she was someone in need. But as we saw the comparison there, there was a distinction, there was a bias there. That's unconscious bias. Now, as Christians, we shouldn't be too surprised by the fact that we do have some bias in us. Because according to the Bible, it's a symptom of the fall. It's a symptom of our brokenness. It's a part of sin. It's a part of the curse. If you remember from the very beginning, one of the first things that sin affected was relationships with one another. It affected first our relationship with God, and then, our relationship, and then the relationship between the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, Adam and Eve. And what's the first thing they did? They looked at each other, they saw the differences within each other as a male and female, and they began to cover up and create divisions between a relationship that was previously completely open and harmonious. And ever since that time, sin's been playing out that reality all the way through so that it affects relationship and community at a deep level. Now, we don't have to run from this reality. We can be open and honest about it because we have the solution and we know the solution the man of reconciliation who is Jesus, the message of reconciliation which is his gospel gives us hope that this can be rebuilt. And it's the church that is supposed to live that out in community, give hope to one another that this can truly be reconciled and giving hope to the world that it is possible that God can reconcile us no matter what those divisions and lines may be. And so you can see how the solution is not just don't be biased because often we may not even see our biases. Instead, it's to bring us back to a place where we d- dive deeper into the gospel identity that we have as the church. Because our community as a church is not just different for the sake of being different. It's different because Jesus made us different. It's, Jesus, it's different because Jesus has made the rich and the poor with the same, born again with the same identity, with the same salvation, with the same destiny no matter who they are and where they come from. And because of this, the church is meant to display Jesus in a way that changes the world. We're to be different in a way that makes a real difference in the world. And with the time we have left this morning, I wanna give you three beautiful ways that the church is different as we close. First of all, we have a different source. You know, I just said this, but to be a Christian is to be given a salvation, a new identity, and a new destiny, and yes, a blessing to be a part of this community that we call the church and it's this is all due to the love of God that has been given to us freely by his mercy and grace which puts us all at a place of commonality before the cross we are common in our source the reason we have this community is that it comes from the same source it is what Jesus has done to save us and to bring us together This is the source and the reason that we have community, and it also defines the community that we're supposed to be. We should never forget where we came from as the church. We came from a place where we were needy of God's mercy, and all of us started at that place. All of us are really still there. And it's made possible by the sacrificial love of Jesus. Secondly, we have a different makeup. Maybe you've noticed this before, but when you walk into a church you tend to see groups of people congregating together, talking together, that you might not ever see at any other place outside of the church. You see people from different generations talking and, and, and laughing and sharing and praying for one another and serving one another. You see people from different backgrounds, uh, different ethnicities, different political opinions, different jobs, different hobbies, all kinds of different things coming together under the banner of Jesus. And what's beautiful about it is that it's almost like the more different they are, the more beautiful it becomes, because what you see is what binds them together is Jesus. What you see is what binds them together is the testimony of this identity they have as Jesus's people together. And it's a beautiful thing to watch because you get to a place where you're looking at it and you're like, these people can't have anything else in common. Or what are they doing together? And that beautiful difference is what illustrates what God does uniquely through Jesus Christ. In fact, one pastor from India said this about the Christian churches in India. He said, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations in other words everything that they do in india with the christian churches even the miracles that happen among them the healings and those kinds of things actually can be duplicated at times by hindu and muslim congregations but in my area only christians strive to mix men and women of different classes races and social groups that's the real miracle and that's why unity in diversity of the church is so important Not because diversity just sounds good as an idea. I mean, it does sound good as an idea, but because it is necessary. And it's one of the biggest visible and ongoing miracles of the church. Unity in Christ together amidst diversity. And finally, we have a different purpose. You know, the community of the church doesn't exist only for itself. I mean, as beautiful as it is, it's great to enjoy the blessings of community. I think it's a wonderful thing to hear that when you come to church, you feel like this is my family, this is my home, all of those great things that come from church community. But ultimately, that is not church community's ultimate purpose. Our purpose is to look like Jesus in the end, and that should be our standard for what a healthy church looks like. It's great to have a healthy church where you feel like you can come, and this is the place where I feel like I'm at home, and I really appreciate the relationships. All those things are great. But all those things don't necessarily guarantee that we are a community or a church that actually looks like Jesus. And we've been called to a a purpose of glorifying God among us together as an outwardly focused people. So that means as an individual, I'm outwardly focused, first of all, towards one another in the church. And then as a church community together, we are outwardly focused out into the world. And all of it is focused upward to glorify Jesus in the end. That's also why the enemy of the church, who is Satan, wants to disrupt and divide the community of Jesus' followers. Because the Spirit of God has been working since the beginning to do a miraculous thing among us as Christians in the church, to show the power of the gospel to the world. And so the target, one of the main targets of Satan's destruction is the unity of the church, because if he can divide us, if he can cause us to grumble against one another, as James chapter 5 warns about, And if He can trap us in cycles of things like gossip and slander and fighting out of selfish motives against each other, He can destroy and He'd disrupt and distract us from our purpose in the world, to glorify Jesus and to make Him known among us and out into the world. And to finish up this morning, I know that when we read something like what we read today about a situation happening in a church 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, that it might not seem very personal I have to tell you, from a pastor's perspective, personally, I love these kinds of passages because what I see James doing is dealing with a very very pastoral heart uh, with the church. He is pleading with the church to be the church. And I can appreciate that pastoral heart that he has. Of course, one of the things that we know in the book of James, if you don't know it yet, you will know it as we go through it, is that James is very straightforward. He's very blunt. At times, he's very harsh with what he says, but it comes from a pastoral heart. Paul is much the same way. The Apostle Paul and the letters that he writes to the churches in the New Testament, you can see his pastoral heart come through. But here's a challenge for us, is that I don't think this is just a challenge for pastors to have, but I think all of us in the church who are a part of the church need to have this same kind of pastoral heart, if you will, for the community that we are a part of. We all have a part to own in the health of the church, and we're all responsible for the way that we steward that calling to be a part of the church together. I think this calling uh, to be a part of, of the church is, is also understanding it from a standpoint of ownership. Not complete ownership, but owning the role that you have been called to. It's an ownership of your stewardship, if you will. We don't own the church, obviously. God owns it. But at the same time, we have a role that we're called to own as a part of it. I was talking with someone from our church last week and uh, on Sunday morning, and I was thanking her for the encouraging emails that she had been sending me over these past several weeks. And, uh, and, she said, and she just simply responded and said, you know, that's the gift that God has given me. That's the calling that God has given me, just to be an encourager. Just like your gift is to go teach on Sunday mornings, my gift is to encourage people where I see. And when I listen, when God tells me to encourage somebody, I just do it. I just send them an email or, or, or a note or whatever it may be. And I thought it was so profound because from her perspective, it was just, this is what I do to help make the church healthy. This is what I do to glorify Jesus by what he calls me to do. Now, yours may be different. Um, I would certainly, you know, I'm certainly not going to say, uh, <laughs> I'm certainly not going to be upset if yours is the same as hers to send me encouraging emails, right? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to be upset about that at all. But in most cases, it's probably not. In most cases, it is something else that God has uniquely qualified and called you to do to promote the health of the church that he has created, here at North or in any other place, whatever that local expression may be. Now, look, our challenge is to love the church as we read this. I think one of the challenges that we come out of this with is really just a challenge to love the church as much as, as much as James is telling us to love the church here or as much as he's modeling us to love the church. Ultimately, we want to love the church as much as Jesus loves the church. That's our ultimate example. But when we read something like this, I can't help get uh, fired up about how he is fighting for and engaging the unity and the blessed testimony of the uniqueness of the church of Jesus Christ. And he knows how important it is because he knows what's at stake if we get it wrong. But he also knows the possibilities of what happens when we get it right. It's the responsibility of all of us who are part of the church to look out and to promote the health of the church in this way. So that being said, let's pray. Let's pray that God would continue to do this. Among us, I want to ask a band to join us as we continue to worship and close out this morning. And we want to pray this morning Uh, that God would help us to be people who are promoters of health in the church, whatever that looks like, and that we would have the wisdom to be able to see that. So, Father, this morning, we want to thank you, first of all, for your idea of the church. It is a unique organism. It is a unique community, such like the world has never seen and can never fully understand or realize because it is done completely by your power, by your grace, and your mercy. It is by your design and it is for your glory. And so we pray this morning, Father, that each of us would be in a position where we can own our stewardship of what our role looks like in the church. As we're brought together as the body of Christ in this world, we realize that we do more than just represent a religion. We do more than really even just represent a Savior. We actually are his hands and feet in the world. And so it's important that we get stuff like this correct. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would reveal things in our hearts where um, it may not look exactly like what it looked like in the first century, but that our favoritism, our bias, our blind spots need to be exposed. And, And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be afraid to acknowledge it, to confess it, and to repent because your grace and mercy has covered it all. We don't have to fear judgment in the gospel because mercy triumphs over judgment. And because that is true, we can truly come back to a father who is always waiting with his arms wide open to welcome us home. Whatever piece of our heart needs to be welcomed home, we pray, Lord, that you would do that in us. And as we've been praying through this entire series, we are asking for wisdom. Lord, help us see In all these situations, your perspective, what is your church supposed to look like? How is it that your church was meant to glorify Jesus in this world and to be a different community? Not for the sake of being different, but different because Jesus has made us different. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
0: In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's Closing Thoughts.
1: still thinking about maybe a couple of ways that you can own your stewardship uh, as a part of a church i would encourage you to do a couple things here at north first of all be praying for us Uh, we need to continue in prayer together believe that god is is taking we've been through some stuff god is taking us continually through some stuff and so we need clarity we need wisdom we need uh we need unity together and so be praying for us Um, And secondly, if you haven't had a chance to jump into a community group here at North, I think that's one of the the best steps that you can make uh, as far as connecting with other people, as far as understanding what is my stewardship as a part of community here, and how do I get really connected to other people and what's going on at North. Community groups are the best ways to do that here. We've set it up deliberately that way because we believe in the power of these groups. Almost meeting is like small little groups of church uh, and families to encourage one another. And so we have uh, we have groups that are meeting all over the place at all different times. We have groups that are meeting on Zoom right now. So if you prefer that kind of an option, that's available to you. And we have a lot of ways... That you can get connected to a community group. Just let us know that you're interested somehow, and we will get we will do the legwork of getting you connected. So we have an op- opportunity online. You can fill out a form that just says, "Hey, I'm interested." Your contact information. We'll follow up with that. You can talk to Kirsten Snary. Uh, who directs our discipleship ministry here. You can talk to her. She'll get you connected. You can email just in general the church or call the church or just find one of us on Sunday morning and grab us and say, I want to be in a community group. And we will find a group for you. We will get you hooked up and connected to a group that uh, you can really uh, live life with and continue with. And you you can even do this. If you want to just write your name on a card back there and drop it in the offering box as you leave uh, and say, I want to be a part of a community group, we'll follow up. Many ways to do that. Speaking of those cards, uh, we have prayer request cards on the back table back there. We want to encourage you as you make your way out this morning, if there is something that you would like us to pray for, we consider it an opportunity to join with you in prayer. That's one of the benefits and blessings of community together, is that we bear each other's burdens in prayer. We have a, we, Our staff prays over these requests every week. We have a prayer team. We have an elder team that also pray over these things. And so you are triple covered and triple covered in your prayer uh, in your prayer requests every week and so we take this seriously uh, if you have something that you would like us to pray for regarding your personal life or a friend or a family member write that down drop it in the offering box as you leave here this morning it'd be our privilege to pray for you this week alright have a great week great to see you here this morning go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's message North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.